You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I'll turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. And when you found your place there, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Father, it is the joy of your people to be able to gather around your word. We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our, our guide, our comfort, our counselor, that you would illuminate your word to us, that you would show us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of his majesty and his glory, his condescension, his love and his grace. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive and to hear your word and incline our hearts to your word. May we behold and hear wonderful things this morning. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, just by way of review this morning, it's been two weeks since we were in John chapter 4 after a brief uh, respite from that last week following the church camp out. So I'm just going to give you a quick review, and I don't need to belabor this because we're going slowly enough through John 4 that I doubt that you're missing a whole lot as we're making our way through. Jesus, by a providential appointment from his father, had to pass through Samaria, stopped at the well in John chapter 4, and out came a woman of Samaria to draw water, something she did every evening, something that was commonplace, something that she had done hundreds if not thousands of times in her life. And she saw there this Jewish stranger they had never met before, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now that was a very odd request, and her response to him shows how out of the ordinary that request was, because this woman had three strikes against her. First, she was a woman. And Jewish men did not speak to women out publicly. They didn't even speak to their wives in that culture in public. Second, she was a Samaritan woman. And Samaritans and Jews did not share drinking utensils. And any Jew would have considered any water that a Samaritan man or woman had drawn to be unceremonially unclean, impure water. They also would have regarded any vessel that a Samaritan used to draw water as being ceremonially unclean and impure. So here Jesus had asked for unclean water from an unclean vessel drawn by an unclean woman. Not only was she a woman and a Samaritan woman, and Jews did not use the same utensils with Samaritans, but she was an immoral Samaritan woman, as we find out in the text that is before us. So with those three strikes against her, this whole request that Jesus asks of her to give him some water had to have struck her as so far out of the ordinary, so far beyond the pale, as to be shocking in and of itself. And she understood it to be shocking, and her response in verse 9 shows that it was shocking to her as her response to her in a very snarky, condescending, and I think snippy way played upon the racial tensions between the two of them. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me a Samaritan for a drink? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So you can understand her sort of racial uh, snippety response back to him. I don't think she was at all inclined to give him a drink, nor do I think that she rushed to offer him any water out of her vessel, as his response in verse 10 indicates when he says, if you knew who I was and if you knew what I have to offer to you, it would be you who would be asking me for a drink and I would readily give it to you. And the implication is, unlike your response to me, I would have readily offered to you something of much greater value and much greater importance. Now that kind of, that gracious response to her condescending and snippy response to him 
made her sort of take a step back and approach him with a little bit more respect, a little bit more gratitude and, and gracefulness when she says, Sir, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Where are you going to get this living water since you have nothing with which to draw? To that, Jesus basically used the analogy of the well, the analogy of thirst, and the analogy of water to show to her that what I'm offering to you is not physical water, and what I'm offering to you is not, uh, what I'm talking about is not physical thirst, but if you were to take the living water that I'm able to offer to you, and I can give to you, you would never thirst again, but it would become in you a well of eternal life springing up, or a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, all the way through this whole narrative, and that brings us up basically to verse 15, all the way through this whole discussion between the woman and Jesus, she has not once really understood what he has gotten at. She has not once understood what he has been saying in the way he has been intending it. He has spoken of thirst. She thought he meant physical thirst. He was speaking of spiritual thirst. He was speaking of eternal life. She thought he was speaking of literal physical water. He's speaking of a well inside bubbling up to eternal life. She thinks he's speaking of the well that is in front of them. He speaks of living water, meaning spiritual water. She thinks he's talking about the water that's in the well that is before them. She hasn't got it once yet. Now this happens, by the way, a few times in the Gospel of John, and we see it on a few different occasions where the people who are listening to Jesus do not understand readily or right away what it is that Jesus is getting at. And they take his words in a crass, literal sense, rather than seeing the analogy or the metaphor that he's offering to them. You remember we saw it back in chapter 3? When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, what was Jesus speaking of? Spiritual rebirth, right? Regeneration. Nicodemus didn't get it, did he? Interpreting Jesus in a very crass, literal sense, Nicodemus said, how is it that a man my age can be born again? When I'm old, can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born again? thought Jesus was speaking in some physical terms, and Nicodemus didn't quite get it. We see it here in John chapter 4 with the woman. When Jesus says, I offer you living water, she thinks he's speaking of physical water. And every analogy and metaphor that Jesus offers for eternal life goes right over her head. She doesn't get it at all. Even in verse 15, she still has not got it. And we see it later on in chapter 4. Look at verse 31. When the disciples came back with the food, because they had gone into Sychar to get food, verse 8 says, they had gone into the village to buy lunch. Verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples are saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his word. Now Jesus is speaking of what type of food? Doing the will of the Father. The disciples don't get it. I have food to eat you don't know about. Did you bring him food? I didn't bring him food. We all went to the town together to get the food, right? Where did you get this food? Are you hiding food in your pockets? They have no idea what he's talking about. He's speaking in spiritual or analogous terms. They still don't get it. You see it in John chapter 6 when Jesus speaks of the bread of life. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread. Is he speaking of literal physical bread? No, he's using bread of life to speak of himself in spiritual terms, as a symbol, as an analogy, a metaphor. And they don't get it. Does this not show us just how thick and dense we really are? How, how tolerant is the Lord to put up with such spiritual benightedness, such spiritual blindness? There's a reason we are called sheep in Scripture. You know why? Because we are just as stupid as sheep. Jesus speaking in spiritual terms, and the people who listened to him didn't get it. They never got the analogy. And so it is with the woman. That brings us to verse 15. 
We finished verse 14 last time. It brings us to verse 15. Look at those first two verses. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Now verse 15 and 16 marks a very a very noticeable change in this conversation. Beginning in verse 15, Jesus no longer uses any metaphors. The rest of this conversation, no metaphors, no analogy, no speaking of spiritual things, symbols, none of that. He drops all the conversation about living water, all the conversation about the well, all the conversation about spiritual thirst, all of that. You'll notice for the rest of this conversation, it has taken a turn. Jesus begins from this point to speak in very plain Very simple, very straightforward ways without any analogies that can be misunderstood. And the rest of this conversation all of a sudden moves from what I think she's responding in verse 15, a sarcastic tone, to a very serious, solemn, and somber tone. And you're going to see why here in the next couple of minutes. So let's pick it up in verse 15. Her response, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. Now, did she get what Jesus was saying? When Jesus speaks of living water and being able to provide that, you'll never thirst again. And when I give you this living water and you drink of it, you will have eternal life. It'll go on forever. You'll never thirst. So come to me and take the water that I'm offering to you. Does she get it in verse 15? What's your thought? Now, people have suggested there's three possible ways that we can understand her request. It is possible, and possible I say, it's not my view, it's possible that she's taking him seriously. But she's not understanding exactly what he's saying. So she's taking him seriously, trying to understand what he's saying, and wondering in her mind, is he speaking about some sort of water that is able to satisfy my spiritual thirst and my physical thirst? And so she asks him, if you give me this water, will it satisfy both of these thirsts so that I have eternal life and never have to come here to draw again? So by that view, she's taking the stranger seriously. She's trying to sort of figure out, work out the metaphor with Jesus, try and play this out a little bit and see where he's going and what it is exactly that he's offering. That's possible. A second alternative is that the woman is here expressing the initial stirrings in her heart toward God. The initial movings in her heart toward God. That she's starting at this point in verse 15 to begin to understand her thirst. To begin to understand what Jesus is offering her. She's beginning to see her need at this point. And so she is saying to him with mixed motives and with mixed understanding, Sir, I really do want this water that you're offering to me, but I'm not exactly sure how I get it. Is it something that is in this well? Is it something that's in another well? How do I get this water? So what we're seeing here is a woman who has these initial stirrings in her heart toward God, but she's not quite sure exactly how to express it. That's why she mentions coming all the way out to this water well to draw. Do you remember when you got saved? Initially, when you felt the drawing of God upon your heart, the conviction of sin, and a sudden awareness of your condition, and the grace of God, and what had been provided for you, and what your responsibility was in repentance and faith to the Lord. Remember back in those early days, did you have a full and complete and total perfect understanding of everything that was going on and everything that needed to happen? Did you have a full and perfect understanding of everything that was transpired at that moment when you were being born again? I didn't. I understood a few basic things. But my understanding of theology was abysmal. I mean abysmal. But I understood enough to get saved. And some have suggested that's the way it is with this woman. She's not quite sure what type of water he's talking about, what type of well he's talking about, exactly what kind of need she's talking about, but she is feeling that stirring in her soul, in her spirit, where she's beginning to understand what he's talking about. 
she just doesn't quite know how to put it into words. That's possible. Here, I think, and this is what I think is going on, that it's not, she's not taking him serious. She's, we're not seeing the initial stirrings of the Spirit of God in her heart. I think that she is being toward him very sarcastic. There is a hint of sarcasm in her response. Leon Morris, in his commentary on John, arguably one of the finest that I have on my shelf, says, until this point, it is probable that the woman was not serious. There's no indication that she took seriously the important things he has been saying. But Jesus now proceeds to show such knowledge of her and her affairs that she is startled into a recognition that he is more than he seems. It seems to me in verse 15 that there is an element of sarcasm as she is saying something akin to this. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if you could offer me water that I would never thirst again? Wouldn't we all want that water? What did I say to you last time? I wish I could hook a a hose up to my mouth and just take in a whole bunch of water that would feed me for several months while I sleep and never have to drink for a long period of time. Wish it were possible. Boy, wouldn't it be nice to have that water? Where are you going to get that water? Sure, if, if you have that water, offer it up. Serve it up. I would be happy. Then I wouldn't have to come all the way out here to draw. I don't think she is in the least bit serious at this juncture. Now, before we move on to verse 16, I want you to notice an inter- just an interesting observation. Up in verse 7, he asked her for a drink. In verse 10, he told her, you ought to be asking me for a drink. And now in verse 15, though not serious, we find her asking him for a drink. See how the tables have turned? The beginning of this conversation, she thought she was in a position to offer him something that he needs. As we're working our way through this conversation, suddenly, in a very sarcastic way, she's acknowledging that he has something that she needs. So verse 16, Jesus' response, go, call your husband, and come here. Now where did that come from? Where did that come from? Is it just me, or does that sentence strike you as if it has absolutely nothing to do with what has preceded this whole conversation? Where did that come from? What is Jesus doing? Go call your husband. We've been talking about wells and water and wells and thirst and water and living water, wells and water and thirst. Go call your husband. Where did that come from? You're bringing up my my home life. You're asking about people in my... This seems like a sudden departure from everything that has transpired up till now. Go call your husband and come here. Now, just as people have variously understood the woman's statement, let me tell you how some have understood Jesus' statement in verse 16. Some people have said Jesus here is radically changing the course of the conversation. He's just changing the subject. You know how you and I do. We're sitting around visiting. We kind of wear out one topic of conversation, and we bring up another. Some people think that's what Jesus is doing. He's been talking about wells and living water and water and Jacob's well and thirst and eternal life, and he's just 90-degree turn bringing up another subject. Having exhausted the subject of the well and the water and eternal life, he's now moving on to the subject of her marriage and her husband. Some would say that. I don't think that. I think that verses 7 through 14, all of that has been preparatory for verse 15 and 16. All of that, I believe, is Jesus intentionally steering this conversation exactly where he wants it to go. He has been preparing the way, laying the groundwork to bring up the husband issue in verse 15 and 16. Now, some have suggested that Jesus is simply through talking with the woman. He is so frustrated by her inability to understand anything he has said that he is simply calling for her husband as if to say, all right, oh, you are thick. Go get your husband and bring him here. Perhaps I can make some headway with him and have better luck with him. Since you don't understand what I'm saying, go get your husband. Maybe he will get it. You think that's what Jesus is doing? I don't think he's at all frustrated by how this conversation is unfolding. And that kind of assumes that Jesus didn't know what her marital condition was, doesn't he? 
Because he would be asking her to go do something as if this whole idea that she has more than one husband or has had more than one husband would be news to him or a sudden revelation to him. I don't think that's what's going on. Some have suggested that Jesus at this point just recognized, you know what, I've been talking to a woman alone all by myself for long enough. The disciples are gone. It's just her and I by the well out here in the middle of everything. It's time now for this to take on a bit more of a proper demeanor. And if we're, if this conversation is going to move forward from this point, we need to have your husband here as a witness to how everything is unfolding. That he was starting to get uncomfortable. He's trying to be more proper. You think that's what's going on? I don't think that's what's going on. Because that assumes, again, that he didn't know that she had a husband or what her condition or situation was. Further, Jesus has already crossed all of the cultural barriers and crossed over everything that was conventionally accepted in his time to even begin talking with this woman to begin with. So I don't think that right now he's suddenly saying, you know what, this is uncomfortable, I think we need to do this properly. He's already done everything that was culturally improper by even talking to this woman to begin with. So what is happening? Where's Jesus taking the conversation? And what is he doing in verse 16 when he says to the woman, go call your husband and come here? What is his intention? Jesus is doing with this woman the very same thing that we have been training our youth to do in sharing the gospel for the last number of months. And what is that? He is opening up to her the law. And he is showing her the need of her heart and her own sinfulness. This doesn't come out of the blue. The whole time he has been directing this conversation to get to this woman and her need But before she will ever respond to his offer for living water, genuinely, with a true heart, with a repentant heart, something has to happen. What has to happen? She has to be made to feel her thirst for living water before she will ever want or take living water. Until she understands how thirsty she is, she will never come to the fountain of living water. Until she is made to feel the burning thirst in her soul, for forgiveness and eternal life, until she feels the weight of her condemnation and her guilt before a holy God, she will never truly want living water. So she has asked him, not in a genuine sense, give me this water so I don't have to come here to thirst. All right, you want the water? Then you're going to be, you're going to have to be made thirsty. Go fetch your husband. Bring your husband here. Now what has he done? He has just brought up which commandment? The seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And the recognition that she has now, as he has asked her this, here is a Jewish rabbi sitting in front of her. Go call your husband. And right here in her face, right before her eyes, brought right up to her consciousness, is the reality that she has been married not once, not twice, not three times, not gulp four times, but five times. Five times. And on top of that, she has been divorced not once, and not twice, and not three times, and not four times, but five times. And she was living in fornication with a man who currently was not her husband. Now with Jesus' statement, go call your husband, all of that sin, all of that shame, and all of that guilt is brought right up before her eyes. Now his statement, go call your husband and come here, only strikes us as odd because we are so used to, in our Western American Christianity, of thinking that the next words out of Jesus' mouth should be this. I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. And what I would really need you to do is to accept me into your heart. Please, please, please won't you accept me into your heart. 
I'm dying to have a relationship with you. And I just desperately need your acceptance. And I can't do anything if you will not accept me. That's what we expect. But Jesus does the exact opposite of what we would expect. And by the way, the exact opposite of what modern Western Christianity tells us to do. And he brings up her sin, her shame, her guilt, her condemnation, and the law to show her that she is a sinner. Because with that one commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. We also understand that having broken the seventh commandment, she also broke the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And at some point, likely she broke the other commandment about lying. Because adultery usually is covered up with lying, and coveting usually involves lying. And having broken those three commandments, we go back to the first four commandments, and she had not kept God first in her life, so she had created an idol after her own making, and she had broken all of the commandments that have to do with making God first in her life. So here we have her guilty of five, six, maybe seven broken commandments, and that is what Jesus is showing to her with that one statement. Now I believe that when Jesus said, go call your husband and come here, that accompanied with that was the conviction of the Spirit of God, and all of the guilt, and all of the shame, and all of the baggage that went with that, and the rightness of the, her condemnation in her own eyes, that she began to see that. So what is the Lord doing? He is beginning to make her feel her thirst. Because she's never going to come to living water unless she is first made to feel her thirst. And what Jesus has done here is, as I said, opened up the law. And it's important for us to understand the methodology that our Lord is employing. So we're going to come back to this next week. Because you notice the title of the sermon is Part 1. That's because today is Part 1. I want you to focus in on the methodology and understand why Jesus is doing what he is doing because that is just as important as understanding the details of the text. Why is he going about this the way that he is going about this? It's important for you and I to understand that. And we might ask, is this the only place in the New Testament where Jesus does this? Are we building some sort of a theology of evangelism or what the Lord is doing upon just one isolated instance? And the answer is no. Do you remember several months ago when Dave Rich preached? And he preached on the rich young ruler. What did Jesus do with the rich young ruler? He showed to him that although the self-righteous man thought he had kept all of God's commandments from his youth, that he was perfect, he was righteous in his own eyes. He thought God would be pleased to have him on the team. Jesus showed to him that his true, where he truly breaks the commandment was his covetousness, his idolatry, that was his possessions. And when Jesus told the man, go sell all that you have and come follow me, he went away sad and he went away self-righteous, unhumbled. But Jesus gave him the law to show him you are a violator and a breaker of the law. You violated the first commandment. You violated the first four commandments because you're guilty of idolatry. The man had not kept all of the commandments from his youth. Nobody has kept all of the commandments from his youth. But this man needed to see that. So rather than tell the man, the rich young ruler, look, what I really, really need you to do is accept me into your heart because I have a U-shaped hole in my heart that only you can fill. So please, please accept me as your Savior and ask me in. He didn't do that, did he? He gave him the law. Why? Law to the proud, then grace to the humble. In Matthew chapter 5, what did Jesus do? He beat out the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I say to you, you lust in your heart, you're guilty of breaking that commandment. Because God sees not just the actions that we partake in, but He sees the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He sees the hidden things, the things that nobody else would know. You've heard it say, thou shalt not kill or murder. But I say to you, you hate your brother, You're a murderer at heart. What was Jesus doing in John chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? Hammering out the Ten Commandments and showing them, here's the standard, uh, Matthew 5.48, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody here perfect? 
No. And what Jesus did was show from the law that though the Pharisees thought they were keeping the law and the law was a means of righteousness to them, that they had not kept the law. Not only had they not kept the law, they had fallen far short of the requirements of the law and they could not be perfect. He was using the law to destroy human pride, to destroy self-righteousness and self-reliance for one's own salvation. Jesus did it in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, you must be born again. What was he saying to Nicodemus? All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They do not gain for you anything. It is all rubbish. Nicodemus, what you really need is not a righteousness based upon the law, but as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Not a righteousness that is of your own making, but somebody else's righteousness imputed to you. Because of all the people in the New Testament that we would expect to see trusting in their own self-righteousness, it was the Apostle Paul. And he says, I've done all of these things, I have all of this righteousness, and it's all a pile of dung. And so I count all of it as loss, rubbish, dung, so that I may have the righteousness of Christ and not my own righteousness. What did Paul understand? I'm a lawbreaker, not a lawkeeper. I violated the commandments of the law. Several years ago, when he got done going through the gospel, uh, sorry, the gospel of Acts, I was going to say that, the book of Acts, I preached a message titled the gospel of Acts. And I meant gospel in that way, not like we use it, the gospel of John, because I know that Acts is not a gospel. It's a historical narrative. But that message, the gospel of Acts, what we did is we went through, some of you remember this, we went through and we looked at every single gospel presentation of all of the apostles all the way through the book of Acts. One message, not more than one. One message. We looked at all of them and we found that without exception, without exception, all of the apostles did this. They indicted people for their sin. Then they offered a solution to their sin. They presented them as sinners, hammered out the law, showed the righteousness of God, showed them their moral failings, indicted them for being guilty of crucifying the Messiah and violating God's law. And without exception, that's how the apostles presented the gospel. That is how Jesus did it. That is how the apostles do it. We see it in James chapter 2. And James says, if you violated one standard of the law, you've broken the whole law. And so you are called guilty as transgressors before the law of God. That's how Jesus did it. By that, by did it, I mean sharing the gospel or bringing conviction to sinners. He used the law. Jesus did it. The apostles did it. And listen, for 1,900 years of church history, that is how the church did evangelism. It is only recently in our modern times that we have adopted this pragmatic approach that is designed to get multitudes to respond to a message. And unfortunately, we are, in our pragmatism, offering to sinners the wrong message, the wrong motive for coming to the wrong Jesus, and they're there for all the wrong reasons. And guess what they are getting? Sorely deceived. But we say to them, rather than giving them the law, look, he loves you. God loves you. Please don't, please come and love him back. He really, really loves you and he wants to love you and he wants you to love him. Please, please love him back. Accept him into your heart. And we have the sinner's prayer, which is found in the book of imaginations. And it has proved effective for creating millions of false converts. But don't let that deter you because it will create millions more. And rather than presenting to people their sin, their violation of the law of God, and the fact that they need to repent and trust the Savior or face the just condemnation and the wrath of God that they are under, Our modern methods of evangelism have offered to people all of the wrong reasons. So what is Jesus doing? Go call your husband. Oh, conviction. Oh, do we really have to talk about that? He is making her face the very thing that she must face if she has to receive living water. He can't bypass that. wouldn't, Wouldn't it be easy for Jesus just to go right around that subject? Just don't bring up marriage. 
Don't bring up her adulteries. Don't bring up her life of fornication. Give her the message of love and grace. Don't do any of that. What is Jesus doing? He is taking her right through that issue because she cannot come to living water unless she first confronts and acknowledges and confesses her own sin. Now, what does the Scripture say about the use of the law and the place of the law? I'll read you a few passages real quick with just some brief commentary. And I want you to listen to how the New Testament describes the role and the purpose and the function of the law of God. And you'll see that Jesus is using the law here in the exact way that the apostles said the law is to be used. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law of God restores the soul. How is that? By bringing about conviction and doing what the law was designed to do, and that is to point the sinner to the solution to his problems. 1 Timothy chapter 1, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We say there is a lawful and unlawful use of the law. And the law is good if you use it lawfully. But if you use the law unlawfully, then it's not lawful. And it's not the right use of the law. Is there a right use of the law and a wrong use of the law? There is. What is the right use of the law? Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 1, The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Why is the law given? For the lawless and for the rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What was the law given for? Not a righteous man. The law wasn't given for those who who are righteous, who don't understand their sin. The law was given and directed towards sinners. So that the boasters and the proud and the unlawful and the rebellious and the vile and the homosexuals and the liars and the thieves and the blasphemers would be able to say, Ah, now I see that I am a blasphemer. Now I see that I am a thief. Now I understand I am a a liar. That's why the law was given. There is an unlawful use of the law. If you try and use the law to gain in your own sanctification, that's unlawful. It wasn't given for that. It won't make you holy. If you try and use the law to merit your own justification, to be righteous in the sight of God, never happened. The law was not intended for that. Those are unlawful uses for the law of God. But there is a lawful use for the sinner, for the rebellious. It's for the wicked, to show the sinner their sin. Galatians chapter 3, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on the law. If there had been a law given which could give us eternal life, God would have just given that law and then said, okay, now you do it. And you do it, you get life. You don't do it, you don't get life. But Paul says, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. The law cannot impart right uh, life, nor can the law impute righteousness to us. What is the right use of the law? What does the law do? That's the same thing that Jesus is doing in John chapter 4. It convicts, it condemns, and it declares guilty. Galatians chapter 3 again. The Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Law can never justify us. Law can never declare me righteous. One last one, Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except by the law. What does the law do? It tells me I'm a what? I'm a sinner. That's the right use of the law. That's the purpose of the law. 
not to give life, not to make me holy. It cannot, it cannot destroy the desires of this flesh. It cannot sanctify this flesh. The law cannot kill this flesh. The law cannot mitigate all of the passions and desires of this flesh. The law cannot conform me into the image of Christ. It can't sanctify me. It can't give me life. It can't provide living water. And it cannot justify me in the sight of the holy God. There's one thing and one thing only that the law can do to me as a sinner. And what is it? Guilty. Guilty. Commandment one, guilty. Commandment two, guilty. Commandment three, guilty. Commandment four, guilty. Commandment five, guilty. Every commandment, you're guilty. You're guilty, 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 guilty. And you will stand before holy God. And on that day, what will you do? And if you turn to that law to be justified, you will stand before that holy God only condemned. Because you're guilty. The law was given to show me my guilt. Paul says in Romans 7, If the law had not said you shall not covet, I would not have known coveting. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin. Taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it, it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which was good because be a cause of death to me? May it never be. It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin in affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become very sinful. You see, I wouldn't have known what God's perspective on coveting was if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. And if the law had not said, thou shalt not lie, then I wouldn't have known what God's perspective on lying was. But when I take myself through the law, all of a sudden I realize what? I'm guilty. I can't keep those. I can't keep those. There's never been a day in my life where I have kept all ten of the Ten Commandments. Never been a day. I'm guilty of all of those on multiple occasions. My rap sheet would fill this building in the presence of God. That is grace. So what is Jesus doing with the woman? Um, seventh commandment. Go call your husband. Hmm. This is awkward. How, how do I, how do I get around this? Husband. Technically, technically speaking, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I'll throw that definite article in there. A husband. I don't have a husband. That should do good. So that's what she says. Don't have a husband. What's going on in her mind? She, who knows the Ten Commandments, because Samaritans accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, is sitting with a Jewish rabbi, and she knows that he knows the Ten Commandments, and now she's put in this very difficult position of facing her own sin. Now, I said to you that not only was this the practice of Jesus and the practice of the apostles to use the law to, sh- to bring sinners and to, con- con- uh, to announce them and condemn them guilty before a holy God, it was also the practice of the church for 1,900 years until recently somehow we thought, well, let's just make it a man-centered gospel, tell people to do something other than what the Bible tells them to do, present the love and grace of God and do away with the whole sin, condemnation, judgment, wrath of God. We won't talk about those things because those things offend sinners. You don't want to offend a sinner, do you? No, who would want to offend a sinner? Who would want to make a sinner feel guilty? Make a sinner feel guilty? They'll never come to Jesus to feel warm and fuzzy, will they? Because they'll think that coming to Jesus makes them feel guilty. So let's just make them feel warm and fuzzy and hope that we can somehow trick them into the kingdom. 
That's, been, that's our modern message. Let me give you a few quotes from church history. And those in church history, you'll see that this approach, using the law in evangelism, has been the practice of the church for 1,900 years. First up, Martin Luther. Satan, the god of all dissension, stirreth up daily new sects. Last of all, which of all I should never have foreseen, at once suspected, he hath raised up a sect, as such as teach, that men should not be terrified by the law, but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ. End quote. Modern times, is it not? No, don't use the law. Don't terrify a sinner. Don't tell them they're guilty. Don't preach judgment, uh, 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 self-controlled judgment and righteousness. Don't preach those things. No. Woo them in with preaching about grace and love. All of those things. Stay away from the hard things. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said there is a sect growing today that says we should not make sinners terrified by the law. Martin Luther said the true function of the law is to accuse and to kill, but the function of the gospel is to make alive. You cannot take somebody to Christ unless you first take them to Moses. They have to go to Moses to be condemned in order to understand the justification that's offered in Christ. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, said people will never set their faces decidedly towards heaven and live like pilgrims until they really feel that they are in danger of hell. Let us expound and beat out the Ten Commandments and show the length and breadth and depth and height of their requirements. This is the way of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot do better than follow His plan. We may depend on it. Men will never come to Jesus and stay with Jesus and live for Jesus unless they really know why are they, they are to come and what is their need. Those whom the Spirit draws to Jesus are those whom the Spirit has convinced of sin. Without thorough conviction of sin, men may seem to come to Jesus and follow Him for a season, but they will soon fall away and return to the world. End quote. Do you know anybody like that? Well, he went forward and said the prayer, filled out the card, checked his name by the box, Lived for Jesus, seemed to love Jesus, sang the songs for a while, and now he's where? He's in the world. What's the problem? He was never convinced of sin to begin with. So he came to Jesus for love, joy, peace, and lasting fulfillment. And guess what he got? Trials, tribulations, temptations, mockings, and persecutions, and all the things that Jesus promises us. And so they throw away the gospel, throw away Jesus, slip right back into the world, become a bitter backslider, and their latter end is worse than the first. J.C. Ryle said this, Let it be noted that the first draft of living water which our Lord gave to the Samaritan woman was conviction of sin. The fact is a lesson for all who desire to benefit ignorant and careless sinners. The first thing to be taught to such persons when once we have got their attention is their own sinfulness and their consequent need of a Savior. No one values the physician until he feels the disease. No one values the physician until he feels the disease. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones The trouble with people who are not seeking for a Savior and for salvation is that they do not understand the nature of sin. It is the peculiar function of the law to bring such an understanding to man's mind and conscience. That is why the great evangelical preachers 300 years ago in the time of the Puritans and 200 years ago in the time of Whitfield and others always engaged in what they called preliminary law work. John R. W. Stott, we cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin, guilt, and condemnation, we must not stay there. We must let Moses lead us to Christ. Take him to the law, then to the gospel. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. 
D.L. Moody, it is the great mistake to give a man who has not been convicted of sin certain passages which were never meant for him. The law is what he needs. Do not offer the consolation of the gospel until he sees and feels that he is guilty before God. We must give enough of the law to take away all self-righteousness. I pity the man who preaches only one side of the truth, always gospel and never law. That was from D.L. Moody. Don't give a man the gospel. Don't talk to him about the atonement, justification, Christ's death on the cross, the love of God, the grace of God, the condescension of Christ. Don't even bring those things up until you go through the law first. John MacArthur, a more modern voice, God's grace cannot be faithfully preached to unbelievers until the law is preached and man's corrupt nature is exposed. It is impossible for a person to fully realize his need for God's grace until he sees how terribly he has failed the standards of God's law. John Newton. You know who John Newton is? Author of Amazing Grace. Oh, you'd expect that I'm going to give you a quote about grace now, right? And not law? Now from John Newton. Ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. If you're choking on what I'm saying, another there. If you're choking on what I'm saying, then you're gonna then you're gonna gag and choke on this one. This is Charles Spurgeon. I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. You walk up to a sinner, say, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't talk to him about sin. Don't talk to him about the judgment or the wrath of God. Just tell him about the cross and the love of the cross. Lead him in a prayer. You haven't preached the gospel. So don't be surprised if you produce a false convert. Lower the law, Spurgeon again, lower the law, and you dim the light by which a man perceives his guilt. This is the very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain, for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and his conversion. I say to you, I say you have deprived the gospel of its most powerful weapon when you have set aside the law. You've taken away from the schoolmaster that is to bring men to Christ, and they will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. Martin Luther said the first duty of a gospel preacher is to declare God's law and show the nature of sin. The law and the gospel are given to the end that we may learn both how to guilty we are and to what we should again return. John Wesley it only remains to show the use of the law. And the first use, without question, is to convince the world of sin. By this is the sinner discovered to himself. All his fig leaves are torn away, and he sees that he is wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked. The law flashes conviction on every side. He feels himself a mere sinner. He has nothing to pay. His mouth is stopped, and he stands guilty before God. To slay the sinner is then the first use of the law. To destroy the life and strength wherein he trusts and to convince him that he is dead while he lives, not only under the sentence of death, but actually dead to God, void of all spiritual life, dead in trespasses and sins. I could go on with other quotes from Wesley, Luther, and others. I'm already past my time, but let me close with an analogy or an illustration. You go up to sinner and you tell him, look, God loves you. Christ died for you. Don't you see the love of Christ that he died on a cross for you? The sinner is going to see that as foolish. That's foolish. That's stupid. What do you mean he died from what? That's idiocy. Imagine that you and I are sitting on a dock next to each other, and I say to you, I really love you. I'll show you how much I love you. I jump in the water, sink right to the bottom and drown. You look into the water and you say, wow, what love and sacrifice. No, you don't. You say, wow, what stupidity. And you'd be absolutely right. That's not love, that's stupidity. It's stupidity in the highest form. But if you're drowning in the water... And I jump in to save you, and in saving you, I drown and give my life so that you can live. Then what do you say? You say, wow, what love and what a sacrifice. Friends, sinners are drowning. They're sitting on the dock thinking they're safe. 
And until you make them realize that they are drowning, that they have a disease for which there is no cure in and of themselves, and that their situation is perilous, and that they are under the wrath of God, condemned already, because they have loved darkness rather than light, and they have violated all of God's law, all of his holy standards, until a sinner comes to understand his peril, he will despise the cross of Christ. As J.C. Ryle says, he will never, he will never appreciate the physician until he feels his disease. Show them that they are drowning. You say, but on a practical level, how do I do this? We've talked about this in the Sunday school class. Dave preached this. I've done this. You ask them the questions. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Don't talk about grace until you first get them to tremble before a holy God. And if they refuse to tremble before a holy God and deny their own self-righteousness and feel the weight of their guilt and their condemnation, they are not ready for the good news. They're not ready for it. Why? They'll cast curls, pearls before swine. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. How do you get somebody from pride to humility? You show them that they have violated the law of God and they stand condemned, condemned under the just condemnation of a holy God with whom they have to do on judgment day and that they will die someday and they will stand in that courtroom and their rap sheet is enough to fill this building. What are they going to say on that day? And once they feel the weight of their guilt, then they are ready for the gospel. This was the method of Jesus. This was the method of the apostles. This is what Jesus is doing in John chapter 4. This was the practice of church history for 1,900 years, and it is biblical evangelism. It is the right use of the law to present the gospel. And they have to go together. They must go together. And with this, I close a quote from Spurgeon. After the gospel has been found effectual in the eternal salvation of untold multitudes, it seems rather late in the day to alter it. And since it is the revelation of the all-wise and unchanging God, it appears somewhat audacious to attempt its improvement. Can you improve upon the method of Jesus? No, then do what Jesus did. Law before gospel. Go call your husband. That's where the conviction comes. That's what creates thirst in a sinner. They need to be made to feel their thirst before they will come to living water. Let's pray. Our Father, in all of this, we want to be faithful to your gospel and to your word. We want to rightly understand these things so that we might be effectively used in communicating the truth. Forgive us for where we have sinned and erred in these, in this regard and in these things. And help us to see clearly the method of Jesus and uh, to use it appropriately that we might honor you to faithfully proclaim what you have committed to our charge. We want to be faithful to do this so that we might hear well done and that we might be used to effectively turn sinners to Christ. We thank you that it is your spirit that brings conviction and you use your word and your law and the preaching of the gospel to do that. Help us to understand all of these elements and the right use of presenting the gospel to sinners, that you might be glorified. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.